All right, it's a big news day. Cryptocurrency continues to struggle. Now it's not just China doing the saber rattling. Here in the United States, our government is looking into big transactions in crypto and making their own cryptocurrency to compete with Bitcoin. And it, is this the beginning of the end of Bitcoin and the crypto movement? Or is this the start or the end of the beginning? We're going to get into that. Also, Robinhood is going to give retail investors access to IPOs on the first day at the IPO price. An amazing announcement uh, and more. The founder of Magic Spoon is with us, which is an amazing protein cereal, which I love and I buy. And he started with crickets in bars and that failed, but uh, he still loved protein, just not from insects. He tells that whole story on the back end and I got a special message for you at the end of the pod in the button. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash twist. Terms and conditions apply. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist. And... SecureFrame helps hundreds of companies get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC 2 compliance in weeks, not months. Get $2,000 off your first year by going to secureframe.com slash offer slash twist. Let's take the first story. It's been a rough week for crypto and it keeps getting worse. The U.S. Treasury Department has cracked down on crypto um, or their saber rattling and the Fed has announced they will explore a centralized digital currency just like China has announced a digital one, and they're going to start exploring it this summer. So this uh, leads to a lot of people doom and gloom. Is this the end of Bitcoin? Is it the end of crypto? I think if we look at the arc of history, this might be looked at as the starting line or the be the end of the beginning is how I would describe this. This isn't the end or the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning. The beginning will be looked at as the 10 years of the early days of Bitcoin and the 10 years before that of e-currencies, virtual currencies, in-game currencies, et cetera. So uh, we covered Bitcoin, obviously, on Wednesday after China uh, banned their banks from servicing crypto-related transactions. Uh, and now the U.S. is getting into the mix. So this is a lot of news, but not a lot of facts, right? And uh, we were looking at, you know, when I was talking on Wednesday, I made the point that a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists have lost their minds. They're so into this currency that they have no objectivity, which I can understand. If you bought something at $100 and it went to $60,000, all your objectivity gets lost. Trust me, I've been there. Robinhood, Uber, Com. I love these brands. You're not going to convince me that they're not the greatest brands in the world. My children are the smartest in the world. Your children are the smartest and most beautiful in the world. In your case, the children might be Bitcoin and mine, they might be some of these companies. It's talking your book. I get it. But I told you, and I've been saying for years, if China wants to stop something, they stop it. They wanted to stop the Uyghurs. They put millions of them in jail. They wanted to stop booksellers. They tortured them and reeducated them. They wanted to stop Tiananmen Square. They ran tanks over their own people. And they wanted Hong Kong back and they didn't want protests and they just took those people to the mainland and reinstated uh, or instated their own mainland government in Hong Kong. So we, I think we can all agree that if 
China doesn't want Bitcoin to exist, just like they don't want the New York Times or Facebook to exist, they're capable of doing. If they can stop the New York Times, Twitter, Facebook, and VPNs and certain books to be sold in China, they can stop Bitcoin in China. It's a very simple thing to do. You execute people, you torture people, you reeducate them, and everybody stops doing that behavior where it goes so underground that the cost of being a Bitcoin miner or running Bitcoin servers or having thumb drives with Bitcoin on them becomes so great that like VPNs and other things in China, you would just stop doing it. So let's put China aside. How would you stop Bitcoin in a democracy where people get to vote and you have representatives and you have a legal system? Well, here's my quote. Uh, and I've been talking about this for a, for a while. If we feel the US dollar is suffering compared to cryptocurrencies, our government has a very easy way to fix that. A 10% tax every time you buy or sell a cryptocurrency on top of whatever taxes you're already paying. A cryptocurrency premium, if you will. This is something that is a very real possibility here in the United States. And once you put a barrier like a tax in front of a behavior, the behavior goes down. And when you remove barriers, the behavior goes up. I think that's obvious to all of us. We all watch what happened with cigarettes. They ban the ability for you to smoke in a restaurant and they did it slowly and on airplanes. And you're like, okay, we gave up airplanes or we had a smoking section in restaurants and on airplanes. Then they banned it completely. Then they put a tax on it. And then the tax became $10 a pack. And then consumption went down. In the reverse, you stop penalizing people or you stop uh, criminalizing or um, you stop people from, let's say, uh, putting people in jail for selling, I don't know, fentanyl on Turk Street. <laughs> what happens? The price of fentanyl goes down because in the price of fentanyl on Turk Street in San Francisco, in that cost is the cost of getting your drug dealers in and out of jail and how many days off they have. So if you want the cheapest and the best drugs possible, the best fentanyl, the best meth, you go to San Francisco which is why every junkie, junkie a term in the dictionary for somebody who is addicted to heroin and opioids, if you're a junkie in the United States, you go to get your junk in San Francisco. Why? The least policing, the lowest price, the highest quality. So if you, uh, if you discount something, people will consume more. And if you tax it, they'll consume less. This would be the headwinds of all headwinds on cryptocurrency. Just like if you lower capital gains, people get more involved in the stock market and invest in more startups. That's why there's this big debate. Should we increase capital gains? Should we keep capital gains? You know, I can tell you, since I'm on the front lines of this, one of the big reasons people love to invest in startups and in the stock market is because of capital gains treatment. If not, they would just leave their money in other assets like boats, airplanes, and second and third homes. You lower to capital gains tax, trading goes up. If Robinhood makes trading free uh, and they do it with payment for order flow, people trade more. So uh, on Thursday, uh, the U.S. Treasury called for stricter cryptocurrency compliance with the IRS, saying crypto poses massive tax evasion risk. Uh, I added the word massive. U.S. Treasury Department announced they will require any crypto transfer worth 10000 or more to be reported to the IRS as part of Biden's tax plan. That's a no-brainer. We knew that was coming. Um, and investors have seen the value of their Bitcoin slide 25% of last month. Um, and everybody's kind of realizing this is like maybe a capitulation moment, uh, and the end of the overheated movement. So there's probably two things going on here, stimmy checks and, and people having excess capital at home because they're not going out. They're not going on vacation because of the pandemic with the reopening, people are going to buy less Bitcoin and they might even sell Bitcoin 
to do things in the real world, like go to an electronic music festival. According to CNBC, a growing number of Wall Street analysts have recently been sounding the alarm that regulators at the Treasury and the SEC could soon take a more active role in crypto regulation. Quotes from the Treasury Department release, cryptocurrency already poses a significant detection problem by facilitating illegal activity broadly, including tax evasion. So can you stop Bitcoin and people trading it on uh, USB drives? Well, there was somebody doing that in Vegas with poker folks. They were cashing in chips for Bitcoin. I don't know all the details of the story. You can do a Google search for it. Uh, but they pinched that guy and you get in big trouble. Um, remember, Al Capone, they got him on taxes, not the booze. Story number two, this summer, the Fed will take another step towards developing a cryptocurrency. The Federal Reserve will release a research paper, sound familiar, this summer that explores a move to a central bank digital currency or CBDC. So CBDC is how I'm going to pronounce it. CBD, <laughs> like the miracle drug in cannabis with a C at the end, CBDC. Um, and this is what most countries will do. This does not mean they would eliminate the dollar. They would keep the dollar. They would add this and they would test it and make it one or 2% of, uh, you know, money in the United States. So we probably have two currencies going on concurrently. It would be a, a digital uh, dollar, basically. And um, the Fed has been studying payment systems for several years and plans to release an instant payment service called Fed Now in 2023, Jerome Powell quotes, the effective functioning of our economy requires that people have faith and confidence, not only in the dollar, but also in the payment networks, banks and other payment service providers that allow money to flow on a daily basis. Technological advances will offer new possibilities to central banks, including the Fed. While various structures and technologies might be used, a CBDC could be designed for use by the general public. The moves of multiple countries, uh, mainly China and the central bank digital currency space has sped up the Fed's timeline, according to sources. So uh, in, in summation, if we wrap this all up, the Treasury Department's cracking down on large crypto. The Fed is gearing up to loan its own version. That sounds actually very pro-crypto. It means crypto is here to say if they want to track it and make sure taxes are paid, they obviously want it to exist. And if they're making their own, this means crypto technology is becoming a fabric of life. So it's a win for crypto. Now, is that a win for Bitcoin? Maybe not. Maybe. Um, it could mean that Bitcoin becomes the precursor to the CBDC and that Bitcoin is looked at as the AOL of the space. I know that I'm going to get a lot of people being upset, but it could be that if the CBDC is more powerful, more accepted and easier to use and your bank already has it and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, you know, can put your money into that you might just start using it. It might have massive adoption. And so um, how big is this risk for the $2 trillion crypto market? It's massive. Um, in the short term, is it headline risk? Yeah, it feels like headline risk. In the long term, it's increasing legitimacy for sure, 100%. The crypto tax, I think, is clearly coming. Now, let's just talk about Bitcoin. Um, you know, it hit in 2017, and I spoke at a conference when it was hitting this like, you know, $20,000 kind of mark, I think you know, 19,000 plus. And I told people, listen, this is a great time for you to sell. If you bought at $10, $1, $5, sell half your position, a third of your position, buy your home, buy your second home, pay down your debt, whatever it is, buy some Amazon or Uber or Airbnb stock. And it went down massively. And it stayed down for a long time. And then we had this huge valley uh, from 19,000 down to 3000, which is an 80% correction. Bitcoin steadily dropped uh, for a full year to its first bottom of 3000. Um, and that was particularly painful. And you saw me doing 360 <laughs> dunks on Twitter. 
you know, also telling people like, don't be surprised if Bitcoin goes to zero, this is a possibility. Um, and then we had another peak in July of 2019, we saw it race from 3000 up to 12,000 4x and people were really excited about that. Um, and then the steady bull, you know, run went to 12,000. And of course, we had another valley after that 12,000 down to 6.5k, a 50% correction. And so Bitcoin drops again, it bottoms out, it loses 50%. But it was two times higher than the previous bottom, right? Remember, we talked about that 3k bottom, now the bottom 6.5k. And I'm no chartologist, I don't believe in chartology or any of that stuff. But it is interesting to look at this process. The third mini peak happened in February of 2020, start of the pandemic six, and I think it was pandemic driven. We have this huge rally, and it goes 6.5 to 10k up 50%, uh, 53%, in fact. And of course, a third major valley after that, from 10k back down to 4.9k down 50% again. And following the rest of the financial markets into that abyss of uncertainty and the end of the world in March of the pandemic, COVID fears it bottomed out of 4900, lower than the 6500 previous bottom, but between the 3000 and 6500 bottoms. And we have this fourth major peak 4.9 up to 63k. That's what has made people lose their mind in the last year. 13x in 13 months, certainly something to be excited about. And here we are in the valley, 63k down to 40k. I think even today, we were down in the 38k range, uh, which is down a third. And so people who bought really, really had uh, a little bit of a whirlwind here. To put that into context, it's, we've, I just pointed out the the 2017 peak, the 2019 peak, the 2020 brief peak, and then this April 2021 peak, all of these peaks, um, resulted in valleys that were 30, 50%, 80%. But the valleys um, went down less. So you had this 80% drop, 50% drop, and then a 30% drop we're experiencing now. I think the 30% drop winds up at 50%. So 63 in half is 31.5. I think we could hit the 30k uh, level. Um, and maybe even 20. We'll see. Um, so um, my friend, Zach Colius, a friend of the pod who does ask uh, Jason and Zach with me on this pod, a friend of yours as well. He says, this will be the end game for crypto as a mass market thing. The Fed and the Chinese will launch a centralized digital currency, stealing all the innovation. Then they will ban the decentralized currency. So he's kind of just going there. I think that these things will be regulated. They'll become underground. They'll probably over time become secondary to the ones that the sovereign nations deem acceptable. And I know that this is going to tweak a lot of you, but... Bitcoin maximalists, you know, in the market today, they're not the developers who've developed the technology. Those developers, I think, have been selling their positions through all these peaks and valleys. In fact, I think the valleys, the the smart early Bitcoin holders, I'll call them the, you know, the the single digit crowd or the two digit crowd, you know, people who bought it from 10 cents to $100. I think they've been selling this whole time and buying Amazon stock and, and other things. And I, I think this has become religious. I think it's become a mania. Uh, and I think the people who were, you know, seeing on Twitter from uh, accounts that are anonymous or pseudo anonymous, a lot of these could just be uh, accounts created by people who have large positions who are pumping, 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 and trying to clear positions before this whole Ponzi scheme bottoms out and gets replaced and the technology gets basically co opted by governments. That would be the most cynical take on all of this. I think it could be a long, slow decline for Bitcoin or Maybe Bitcoin keeps going. Who knows? Um, I, I, the majority chance, I think, is that um, Bitcoin 
we'll see 25,000 before it sees 100,000. That would be my bet. Um, I think it's a pretty easy bet to make. Growing your business takes more than offering a popular product or service. It's essential to have the right people in place to ensure your company operates smoothly and has the potential to expand. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the best candidates for free. Hiring is definitely part of my strategy here at launch. We just hired a curriculum designer who's doing an amazing job. We hired a second producer, Justin. Amazing job. Do you know where we find the most qualified candidates? LinkedIn, of course. And I'm going to give you an amazing offer in a moment to put your first job on LinkedIn jobs for free. You basically get to hit that 740 million member network of professionals on LinkedIn. It is ginormous. And if you're willing to do remote folks, you're also going to be able to hire people from around the world. You just fill out a bunch of targeted screening questions. Uh, that's my favorite thing to do to ask people what do they read? What news sources do they like? And you want to get in front of the people with the skills, experience and motivation you need. They've got great filtering and management tools. That's all just done inside of LinkedIn. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn jobs. And now you can post your job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash twist. Again, that's linkedin.com slash twist to post a job for free. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you a free job posting. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. In other news, Robinhood, which I'm an angel investor in, uh, just for clarity and to do a little mini flex, announced IPO access. They're basically going to allow retail investors to buy IPO shares before the company officially lists. In a blog post on Thursday, Robinhood titled Robinhood is democratizing IPOs. Robinhood announced they were rolling out IPO access to retail investors with no account minimum. This is super important and amazing because obviously IPOs pop uh, on the average of 36% in 2020, according to DealLogic. Uh, and retail investors usually don't get involved in that. So there's a little more democratization here. Um, some notable one day pops, Snowflake 104%, Lemonade 139%, Big Commerce 201%, Airbnb 100%, DoorDash 85%, JFrog 62%, and Palantir 38%, all on their first day of trading. So how's it going to work? Well, Robinhood users will search the upcoming IPOs from a list of participating companies that plan to distribute their shares to Robinhood. So Robinhood is going to go to each of these uh, issuers and say, hey, can we get an allocation? Uh, just like a bank would. And I think that they will become the preeminent uh, bank for this. And you probably didn't see this coming. Obviously, I did see this coming because um, I've, I've, I've heard about it from the grapevine as an angel investor, uh, that they might continue their path towards democratization. If this is their path, boy, uh, Robinhood as a, a clearinghouse for IPOs sounds pretty compelling if they have tens of millions of members that would cement even more people using the services if you could get in there and get that first day buy or pre-order, as it were, a reservation. So you request to buy your shares at the initial listing price. When the final price is set, you can review, edit, or cancel before the shares are allocated. Uh, so watch and wait. IPO shares can be very limited, but all Robinhood customers will get an equal shot at the shares regardless of order size or account value. So that's the key here. Robinhood, you know, despite some of the uh, stumbles and, and trips and falls they may have had during these peak outages or peak moments of trading or unprecedented, you know, short selling battles uh, versus the longs. Robinhood has always stood for trying to democratize and make the financial system more equitable. And here is a perfect example of it. 
so how are they going to do it? Robinhood will not be an underwriter, but they will get an allocation of shares by partnering with investment banks. I wouldn't be surprised if Robinhood bought an investment bank. I have no inside information on that. But why not? Um, they, I mean, the reason why not would be they would be competitive, and it would limit their ability to get other underwriters. But it's possible um, that they could uh, buy an underwriter. Um, are they the first movers? Nope. SoFi made a similar announcement in March, but they will act as an underwriter and require $3,000 account minimums. And the old guard has offered IPO investing with a much higher barrier to entry. You may know about that if you have a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman account with seven, eight, nine figures in it, but you would not know about that if you didn't. You would be getting those offers by email or on the phone from your money manager who you pay a VIG to. So um, if you look at Robinhood and SoFi and you compare them to the old guard, and the barriers to IPO access, Robinhood, no minimums, SoFi, 3K account minimum, Fidelity, 500K account minimum, TD Ameritrade, 250K account minimum, Charles Schwab's 100K, and um, Ameritrade and Schwab got sued uh, by Goldman in 2018 over IPO stock sharing after Goldman attempted to end uh, the contract with the brokers. Goldman wanted to sell more shares to its own clients rather than lending them to TD and Schwab to sell to investors. So this is um, pretty amazing news. And just a quick hit, um, I got to listen to Antonio Garcia Martinez uh, on Kara Swisher's Twitter space. Um, you know, he, he talked a little bit, he kind of agreed with me that Slack is uh, the Trojan horse that went into every company. And it basically, I loved his metaphor. I always said, you know, Slack is just not the place or any electronic communications for political discussion, religious discussion, any charged topics, just like you shouldn't discuss your relationship or your finances or religion or any politics over SMS messages or on message boards, because it eventually devolves into somebody calling somebody Hitler, Goodwin's law, if you want to look that up. And so he um, has the same exact feeling that a lot of the Coinbase and Basecamp issues, and in fact, his issues at Apple are part of this. You have employees who have a venue inside of a company to debate. They didn't used to have that unless maybe at a Friday meeting or, you know, in all hands or during a lunch. But when you put it on electronic communication, that's the big thing that's causing this chaos. Obviously, Trump being president for four years made a lot of people lose their minds as well, uh, understandably. And, you know, Kara has a very good point in all of this, uh, and I give her a plus one for this, which is. Apple and Google coddled employees uh, for decades. And, and, you know, she's she's pretty objective about this, saying, listen, you know, don't be afraid to yell at the CEO or tell us what you think. And they gave everybody kombucha and snacks and, and bring your whole self to work and, and all this uh, stuff. But it turns out that might have been a really bad strategy and or disingenuous um, because you give employees all this empowerment um, and then all of a sudden they have power in the Slack room or on a message board and your company hits scale, man, it could blow up in your faces. And, you know, all these non-essential, you know, perks and keeping people, you know, like kids, we're going to take care of your gym, we're going to take care of your dry cleaning, we're going to clean your clothes, we're going to drive you to work on a school bus, you know, and, and you're going to be in an open office plan like kindergarten, we're going to have time on the rug to tell stories, like all this nonsense that, you know, people did and to coddle employees and keep them you know, nurtured and in this cocoon or womb at the Apple or Google headquarters or Facebook headquarters, I think we're starting to realize like, work is work, your life is your life. And maybe it's good that you have your own life after work. And so 
finally, you know, Antonio makes a you know good point, and he was basically talking about his own mental health and how he lost his mind just over the last couple of years on Twitter because uh, he's a full contact uh, person. I don't know if he's being satirical. He tends to be a little satirical, um, but he his quote from um, that Twitter space. I think tw- Twitter Trump and a year and a half of lockdown has made everybody crazy, and nobody knows how to fix it. I know how to fix it. I'm going to go see the Knicks for two games in New York next week, and I hope to see you there. Okay. Uh, next up is the founder of Magic Spoon, a great cereal, a great story. He started with crickets and he ended up with protein cereal. Stick with us. It's time for our crowd's deal of the week. Right now, you can join our crowd's investment in Saito Reason. Saito Reason has partnered with five of the 10 largest pharma companies to deliver life-saving drugs at a fraction of the time and cost. According to the deal memo, Saito Reason's AI models the human body at the molecular level and completely changes what's possible in the trillion-dollar drug development landscape. You can get in early on Saito Reason and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. By the way, did you know that rcrowd investors were able to get in on some of the best IPOs of 2019 and 2020? They benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, and some of our crowd's companies have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. With our crowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily in startups early, before they IPO or get bought. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000, or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. The investment professionals at our crowd have already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits. Again, the our crowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash twist. All right, welcome back. And a great founder on the program, a founder who failed at his last startup building cricket protein bars. Yes. Cricket protein bars, I kid you not. I got pitched on a lot of cricket startups, a great source of protein. Um, but his second company, uh, after the protein uh, bars made of crickets, is one that I am absolutely delighted by. And if you try this cereal, I guarantee you, you're going to love it too. It's quite addicting. And from what I understand, if you're into keto or uh, maybe not spiking your blood sugar, Magic Spoon is magical. And that founder is Gabby Lewis. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, so as I uh, rib, uh, uh, ribbed you a little bit there in the opening, you started with crickets. <laughs> I did. How did you yeah. even find out about cricket protein? And uh, I, I was going to ask you why that failed, but I think it's pretty obvious people don't want to eat bugs. Is it, did, you, did you figure that out? It was too, too tall of a mountain it, to climb? It, it took us five years. Eventually, it, it sunk in. You know, <laughs> that, that, that was actually half of it. And we can, we can get was into it. Was it really? So... Part of it was the demand side, obviously. Hard to sell people to eat something they think is not only weird, but downright gross. So a bit of a marketing hurdle there. But the harder part actually was the supply chain. So when we started that business, and just to sort of get into why we started it, the idea was that insect protein in general, crickets in particular, extremely sustainable protein source compared to pretty much anything we conventionally eat for protein. And... We thought it would be an interesting idea if we could convince people to move some of their diets away from traditional animal protein towards Mm. sustainable proteins like crickets. And our idea for convincing people to sort of make that leap was to develop a line of protein bars that turned the cricket protein into a flour that had no taste and 
sort of mm. create this Trojan horse of sorts. And the Trojan horse was a little bit harder to get in than we thought it might be. Yeah. And then, like I said, even the harder part was creating a supply chain from scratch with insects that you have to optimize the feed and the temperature and the water. And I, I would just that. imagine like you're, it must be like a hundred crickets in each bar and chasing around the forest trying to find a hundred crickets per bar must have taken forever. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they weren't wild caught or they, oh, these weren't they free were, range crickets. You know, oh, I'm the, not these interested. Were, I know farm raised, but the, the upside of farm raised, whether it's fish or cattle or crickets is you can control the feeds. You can optimize the omega three profile. And so. Very healthy crickets, despite not being free range. Yeah, I mean, it, it it was a really great idea as a founder when you think about it. Everybody wants sustainable protein. We know how horrible, you know, factory farming is in terms of cruelty, sustainability, bacteria, and, you know, antibiotics. I mean, it's just a long list of why that's not a sustainable protein source. Um, and it seemed like a really good idea. And we were pitched on many different companies doing it. And the sourcing of crickets was always a problem. And of course, getting people to not be grossed out buying it, it was like a really unique set of people who wanted to buy into this. But uh, you sold it to Aspire Foods, and then you started Magic Spoon uh, back in, uh, I think, the beginning of 2018, and uh, raised a little bit of money for that. What was the initial concept there? And, and then Tell us what you learned from the protein bars that you carried over into Magic Spoon and the, and the formulation of this next company and idea. Yeah, so I think first learning is sell something that people actually want, which, which sounds flippant, but I think a lot of founders don't quite appreciate product market fit. I think especially in the food world, there's this idea that you can take a cutting edge ingredient, whether it's moringa or kombucha or you know an obscure mushroom with amazing benefits and if it makes logical sense and you're a smart capable founder you can brand it nicely and convince people to buy it and that was sort of what we were trying to do with exoprotein the idea made sense logically we thought with some clever marketing we could just make cricket protein mainstream overnight or at least in a couple of years turns out it was a little bit harder than we thought and so mm. this time around for our next business we wanted to do something a little bit less niche than crickets and what could be less niche than cereal. It is the only food group, basically, where you wander into the grocery store, there's an entire aisle dedicated to it. Yes. And, and from kids to adults, everybody loves a bowl of cereal. It's like a go-to food. But cereal is the worst thing you could possibly eat historically. Sugary cereals are flour and sugar and do what to your blood and do what to your chemistry yeah 100 percent. so it's this whole aisle just stuck in this old paradigm of sugar and carbs and grains but it's a product that everybody loves everybody's got amazing childhood associations with being carefree watching cartoons having a delicious bowl of sugary cereal but most people including myself when they grow up they stop eating it as often maybe it goes from every morning to a couple of times a week or a guilty late night snack and what we wanted to do or at least see if it was possible to do was recreate that same taste and texture we all love from the classic cereals, but doing it a way that's guilt-free, grown-up ingredients, optimized macronutrients, meaning high protein, low carbs, zero sugar. And that was really the idea for Magic Spoon. And how does one, as a food entrepreneur, actually formulate something that I think, you know, really didn't exist before you did it? There, there were very few people in this space. Um, how does one go about making a product I, i'm curious like is there like a laboratory you go to resellers 
How do you do it? Yeah, it's very different for different types of foods. So for most products you see in the grocery store, the way somebody would start to formulate it is they would start in their own home kitchen. So let's say it's a protein bar, like our last business. Mm. You start in your own home kitchen, you'd order maybe nut butters, dried fruits, get a Vitamix, blend it together, form it by hand. Next stage is you rent space in a small commercial kitchen, rent it by the hour, they got some larger scale machinery, maybe you can make a few thousand protein bars there, for example. Then you find a small co-packer, contract manufacturer, outsource partner, they've got bigger machinery, maybe they make 10,000 bars and you scale up from there. Cereal though, there's no version of making it at home. You can't just yeah. puff, you can't puff the, um, whatever the main ingredient might be. But what you be. described was how RX bar grew, correct? Like they, it totally. was like dates and eggs and whatever, and they literally handcrafted them and then made small batches and then 100%. co-packers. Yeah. And you Go can ahead. do that with most products you see in the grocery store, if it's a beverage, mm. a snack product. Our product, cereal, it's an extruded product. So basically, you mm. take a flour, or in our case, a protein powder, and you put it through an extremely expensive, large-scale piece of machinery. And so there's no small-scale way to test it out. So we had to go around the country and visit all these different cereal manufacturers and convince them basically to run trials for us and help mm. us develop that initial formulation. So we went through probably every protein source you can think of, except for crickets, actually. But everything else from pea protein to whey protein, collagen, everything in between, we tried every natural sweetener you can think of in various uh, permutations. And after about six months of testing endless formulas, came up with a texture that mimicked the texture of classic cereals. And then we moved on to the flavoring and worked Mm -hmm. with a bunch of different flavor companies, testing, for example, dozens of different cocoa flavors with slightly different lighter, darker vanilla notes. And eventually we sort of dialed in the various formulations. I have to say, you know, the the Magic Spoon flavors are absolutely uh, delicious. And uh, there's a peanut butter one, which I think is my favorite right now. I, I, we got the variety pack at some point, um, and I, I tried them all. Uh, there's a Fruit Loops type one, like a fruity one. And there is a frosted one and a cocoa one. But they all kind of look like Cheerios that size. Um, yeah, they're like all little the same. little round O's, right? Yeah, they're all the same shape. They're all round. We have five or six sort of evergreen flavors. And then we launch limited edition flavors every six what? weeks. I didn't know about that. And yeah. that's incredible. And when you look at it, the major difference I noticed is there's almost no protein in like your frosted flakes, like one gram per serving. Somehow you figured out how to get like, I think it's 15, 14 or 15 grams. Yeah, in, exactly. a, in a serving. So yeah. it's literally 10 times, 14 times the amount. It is. And it's funny, one of those large cereal companies I won't name, they came up with a quote unquote high protein version a few years ago and they increased the one gram to three grams. So, so they literally the, tripled it, but yeah, you did 14. I mean, that, so that, that was the sort of level of innovation. Is that a cost issue? Is doing. it really expensive to put protein in it? Is that the issue? I think it's a number of things. Protein powder is massively more expensive than mm. wheat flour or, or sugar that other brands are using. And I mean, it's funny to look at cereal as a category, traditional cereal. It's sort of a microcosm of everything that's wrong with the food system, right? It's industrially processed, subsidized grains and sugar. It's sort of the, if you could try and create a tasty, but as cheap as possible food, just to like quickly satisfy people and give them a quick energy bump, that's going to crash later. That's cereal just in a box and then marketed to children. So um, very cheap ingredients, very cheap formulations. Protein is is more expensive. And then there's also some formulation hurdles. So once you generally get 
the base formula to be around 40% protein and we're much higher than that, mm. it comes out quite hard. And so it took many months uh-huh. of formulations for us to figure out how you get the light, airy texture as well. So that's like you have to blow some air into it or something? I mean, it's some that's aeration something. occurs? Yeah, some, something like that. And then I think mean, the other piece as well is the these large cereal companies, whenever they've tried to make healthier versions, it's backfired. So Lucky Charms famously removed artificial uh, flavorings from their cereal a few years ago. And the yeah. sales plummeted. And so they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't try and make this thing healthier. Really what happened is that everybody that didn't care about nutrition, they didn't care that there were no artificial flavors in there anymore. Yeah. It, just, it just tasted a little bit worse to them. So they lost those customers. And people that do care about nutrition, it's still terrible for you. So they didn't get anybody new either. Yeah, it's like if somebody's walking into McDonald's, no offense to McDonald's, they're not thinking about their nutrition. So making a Big Mac healthier means nothing to the mcdonald's customer you know all, all respect intended like maybe adding a salary bring in extra customers but it actually makes total sense if you know and and making a coca Cola, making a diet coke yeah maybe that's like a different it's a different product line right and, and i think that's probably the mistake what they should have done is just said hey we own you know frosted flakes we're gonna make a different brand <laughs> like magic spoon look you probably keep hearing about SOC 2 compliance, and you might think, is this relevant for me? Well, if you're targeting any large enterprise customer, there are all sorts of data privacy and security measures that you need to have buttoned up in order to close those deals. And you don't want your engineers taking time to do this kind of stuff. And you definitely don't want to hire a third-party auditor. No joke, getting SOC 2 compliant can take months, and it costs a ton. That's where SecureFrame comes in. SecureFrame helps hundreds of companies get enterprise ready by streamlining SOC 2 compliance in weeks, not months. They also monitor over 40 services, including AWS, GCP, and Azure. SecureFrame will continuously collect audit evidence, run security awareness training, manage vendors, infrastructure, and more, all automatically. On average, SecureFrame customers save 50% on their audit costs and hundreds of hours of time. Their team of compliance experts and auditors are happy to answer any questions and give advice. When you think of compliance, don't get stressed. Just think of SecureFrame. Streamlined, affordable, and hassle-free. SecureFrame is offering, what? $2,000 off the first year for Twist listeners. That's right, $2,000 off your first year at secureframe.com slash offer slash twist, okay? Secureframe.com slash offer slash twist for $2,000 off. Nicely done, Secure Frame. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. You guys charge, I think, 9 or $10 for a box of cereal. The equivalent for Frosted Flakes would be like 3 bucks. So you charge three times as much. A bowl of cereal goes from, you know, 50 cents to a buck 50, something in that range. Um, how do you overcome that with customers? Or are there just, is it just that Frosted Flakes are just too goddamn cheap? And <laughs> And uh, yeah. it doesn't matter to people. Most of the latter. I mean, there's a lot of categories where we, we've seen this happen, right? Whether it's personal care or beverages, there's like the cheap Coca-Cola and then there's the kombucha or the healthier beverages that are massively more expensive or even just to look at juice, right? You've got the Tropicana orange juice and then cold pressed juice comes in several years later and it's much, much more expensive. And so time and time again, we've seen that people will pay for a higher quality product. What we tend to do to get people over the initial shock 
is explain, and this is right when we say it, what we're selling is not really cereal. I mean, it's literally not cereal. There's no cereal grains in our product in terms of a strict ah. initial definition. What we're selling is protein powder in the shape of cereal. And so when ah. you compare it to a protein bar, per gram of protein, we're cheaper than a protein bar. And nutritionally, we're the same. You're so 10 cents a gram of protein, 12 cents a gram of protein. Yeah. And so once you frame it like that and you compare it to an RX bar, a Quest bar, a protein shake, whatever, it's a much cheaper breakfast option. That makes complete and total sense. Do you only sell direct to consumer? We do. We actually just launched on Amazon about a month ago. But wow. we're, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah, How did you, know, wait, you did yeah. like three years of direct to consumer and then you go on Amazon. Do you go on Amazon because they reach out to you? So we're, we're two years into the business. Yeah. We, yeah, all D2C. We decided to go on Amazon for, for a couple of reasons. One, there's just a lot of people that only shop sure. on Amazon and we were losing them to copycats that are, that are popping up. So, okay. we, so they had, you, you had a gun to your head, basically. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have to do it, right? Plenty of brands have copycats on Amazon and they decide that it's still not worth them doing for, mm. you know, I think if you're an apparel or fashion brand, there's good brand association reasons potentially not to go there. For food, I don't think that matters at all. Um, but for us, we just saw the monthly search volume for Magic Spoon cereal and we saw these other brands that were just ah, copying what we're doing, taking brutal. that. And so we figured we might as well just just take that share there as well. And so I see I'm looking at it right now, 44 bucks for uh, subscribe and save when you do it on your sites, 36 bucks. So there is a super incentive to go direct. And is is that part of the idea in managing the, you know, when a brand is going to manage Amazon, as opposed to having Amazon manage them, you're, you're going to just charge, you're going to give a discount for coming to your site. And it's just a little more expensive. So for me, if I did subscribe and save, we're talking about an $8 swing. If I'm going through this monthly, I'm going to get $100 a year. You know, it's quite significant. It's like two free months if I go direct. Yeah, part of it is the subscription program we have on our site. Part of it is also we have the core flavors on Amazon, but the limited edition flavors that we launch every six uh -huh. weeks only on our website. And so last month, we launched maple waffle and cookies and cream. They sold what? out in a couple of days. Next week, we're launching two new flavors. The, yeah, like I didn't birthday know cake about flavor. this. This is making me like get hungry just thinking mm, about it. Mm. So can I subscribe just to the new flavors or do I have to come to the site and like it's like a drop and it's like I got to be there on the right time? It's the latter. I mean, we'll, we'll email oh, you, we'll text you, we'll, we'll, make, we'll make you aware. Um, but because they, they don't occur with sort of like a definitive frequency, there's no subscription just to those. But I that's think it's a, a terrible idea. idea. Respectfully, no, I, Gabby, yeah. I think it's a terrible idea. I think <laughs> I what you should do it. is there should be a VIP program. And you, uh, if you subscribe for the year, I give you all my money for the year for five boxes a month or whatever, you know, what would that be? Yeah, I buy 40 boxes a year. You guarantee me I get every special edition. Can we I make like a it. deal? Like a VIP product? Because like 40 it. a year is 400 bucks. I give you 400 at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Whatever you, it is. You buy you, in up front. Yeah, you just get no all that cash up front. Yeah, like no cancellation. It. Boom, yeah. you get guaranteed. Good, good for a cash flow too. Love it. Uh, when you brought this idea to venture capitalists, did they think you were nuts? How do you get a venture capital firm to Excited agree to this? Excited by cereal, yeah. Yeah, it does seem a bit crazy. Not and you've crazy. raised three rounds of funding, I think. So you've raised not, well not over as, 10 million, right? Yeah, but we're, you know, 
we were used to pitching crickets. So ah, all right, so a little well, easier well, than that. <laughs> yeah, once you've been trained on that, it anything's easier. It, it was funny actually when we spoke to traditional food VCs. There was this conventional wisdom that cereal as a category was dead. We actually mm. spoke to one investor who said to us, "I think it's an amazing idea, but don't call it cereal. Call mm. it puffs or bites or something else." Because people were looking at the category of cereal and they were seeing a decline year over year, and it was, but it's declining from 12 billion to you know something slightly smaller than 12 billion, still an enormous mm. category. But for whatever reason, people just saw that and they thought, "We don't want to get into this declining category." Traditional food investors, I'm talking about now. Um, and then there was also concerns, I think, as as there is with, often with other food companies that are innovating, that this is a category that's dominated by, in our case, three companies. So. Mills, Post, and Kellogg's control about 80, 85% of the market and dominate shelf space. So that, that was another worry. But I think all of that was sort of alleviated by the fact that still enormous category, a product that people absolutely love. And really the first true innovation in this aisle in, I mean, since granola, maybe. If you walked the cereal mm. aisle 30 years ago, it looked the same as it did two years ago. And so really it's just been dying for something new. And a lot of the investors personally what we were doing really resonated with them. Like when we described to them how we wanted to bring back cereal in a way that was packed with good stuff and had none of the bad stuff, it made sense on a personal level as well. And then we also um, raised most of our funding from investors that actually backed our last business. And so even though most of them didn't get the outcome they wanted in the last business, they had a lot of trust in us from the five years we'd worked together. And so most of them actually backed us again in the initial rounds for Magic Spoon. So you, you proved that you were... Uh, a good steward of capital and you're gonna make a good run at it so you had built up that trust for the second company now as a d2c company you got to have marketing channels i've seen you guys i think on the insta and i think i've heard you on podcasts mm -hmm. what what works for d2c and especially in today's market where my understanding is when the economy is really hot the facebook ads get too expensive for d2c products only work for software products really and so I don't know the margin of your business, but it's it's pretty healthy, I'm assuming. But obviously, you can't be as healthy as, you know, com.com selling software or some video game that has people paying 100 bucks a month in virtual currency. So so how do you build a D2C business? And has that changed now with the Facebook uh, algorithm mobile changes? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that last piece first. Okay. N not much has changed for us. We... We have a very mass product, right? So we haven't typically relied on straight narrow targeting. We've typically uh -huh. done like broad audiences. And and that's been, I think, when you asked earlier about our learnings in the last business, one of the biggest learnings now is we want to make sure we're building a product with mass appeal. And so some people like our product because it does work for the keto diet, it doesn't spike blood sugar, but it, this works just as well for a mother or father of five that want to give their kids a quick, healthy breakfast in the morning. And so mm. we've been very careful not to target just specific niches. Um, in terms of other channels beyond Facebook and Instagram ads that every D2C company is playing in, we do do a lot in podcasts, like you mentioned, mm. both larger ones like you know, Tim Ferriss, Pod Save America, and then a bunch of smaller ones as well. We do a lot of influencer marketing, and that ranges from tiny influencers that we're just seeding product to all the way up to major celebrities who became investors in our business, and then a sort of bunch of things in between that that are cash and rev share and any wow. number of different relationships. So when you look at podcasts, I'm just curious, um, it, your, if your average lifetime value is whatever, four or five months, $200, something like that, 
who knows what the real lifetime value is because uh, you're only two years into the business. But you know, these podcast ads on Tim Ferriss or other at scale podcasts might be whatever, 20, 30, $40,000 an ad, and you're selling $40 worth of cereal in a four pack. Is that even possible for you to be profitable from the get? Or are you looking at it as like half branding, half ROI? How do you think about that? Well, the flip side of what you're describing is that we have much less consideration, a much higher conversion than these other companies, right? So ah. yes, like someone might be selling a $1,000 mattress, the higher margin on that purchase, high, higher Got average it. order value, we're 5% of that average order value, but I bet mm. our conversion rate is, you know, more 20x their conversion rate. So Got people, it. you know, people buy this quickly when someone sees or hears an ad from us. It's not then a month of us retargeting them in six different places and then yeah. making sure you're trying to sell eight sleeps, $1,500 bed, which I'm an investor in. It's well worth it. You've, you've narrowed the audience down to exactly. people who really care about sleep and who can afford and it to takes spend that. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you have to convince them it's a considered purchase and all that stuff. Um, uh, and then in terms of agent, in terms of influencers, what works there? Because I've heard that nano and micro influencers are super effective and that like the big, huge ones, people with tens of millions are not effective and that it's really this sort of mid market. Is that true directionally or is it, you know, you have a, a mass appeal product or are you just doing like the, the people who work out and who are in great shape and, uh, you know, into diet? Yeah, with, with all this stuff is trade-offs, right? So if mm -hmm. you're looking at pure efficiency, I'd say generally the smaller, the better in terms of just return on ad spend, but you can't mm -hmm. scale that quickly. So you're not going to build a big DTC business only working with influencers with 5,000 followers. And Got so it. if you want to grow quickly, you need to be playing in sort of the next stage. So let's call it 100,000 to 2 million followers. And so that's usually where we're focusing. That's the right blend of efficiency and scale. Once you get beyond that, and there's like four different managers involved and much longer contracts, it gets a little bit harder. And also that becomes more of a brand awareness play. So we're in that middle area. We do it mostly on Instagram stories and YouTube, actually, and starting to explore TikTok as well. Got it. Your TikTok makes total sense. When the grocery stores must have come calling the Walmarts or the you know, whatever Costco's, when they start calling, how do you think about them as a business? Are you gonna take the same approach? And or is there just not enough margin for you to run a robust business? How do you think about them? Yeah, plenty of margin. First of all, you know, we built this business, assuming we're going to go to brick and mortar eventually. So actually, when we started a couple of years ago, I didn't think we'd be purely D to C two years in, honestly. I didn't mm. think we'd be able to build a business this big, this quickly, only D2C, just because it hasn't mm. really been done in food very much. So we've been developing relationships with the large retailers since our last business. So we, we know them all, we talk to them, and eventually we, we will be uh, everywhere that cereals purchased, basically. We, we need to be. Uh, and then you have one form factor of cereal, um, which is these O's and this puffiness. Um, they're very light, uh, crispy. They, they, they do well under uh, milk duress, uh, I find. They don't get <laughs> soggy, which uh, is, is pretty nice. But have you started to think about like maybe some other types or is it uh, going to just be changing the flavors? And have you thought about other brand extensions or do you think it's best to just stay focused on cereal and own that? We've thought about it, but really there's no need for us to think beyond cereal in any detail right now. Mm. It's an enormous category. 
Uh, I think that was actually maybe one of the one of the differences when we're talking to food investors versus tech investors early on. You know, every tech investor's first question was, "What's the platform? Where, where do you go beyond cereal?" Yeah. Um, but when you look at the food industry, very few food brands are able to really move beyond a hero product. So whether you're talking mm-hmm. about Quest bars and like, yes, they have chips and pizzas and all these things, but bars are still the core business. Or Vega, for example, that's got endless different bars and shakes and powders, but really there's like one powder that's core business. Uh. Usually there's a hero product and that's the main focus. And for us, because cereal is such an enormous category, there's not really a need to start playing in bars or yogurt mm. or any other smaller category that's really just distracting. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what's next for the business? How, how, what are the challenges now that you've gotten to? I'm assuming, you know, millions or if not tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, you're a virtual company. It's a, a small company. I think you, you're you trying to keep it lightweight. But um, what, what's next for the business? Just more of the same and scaling? Or do you have to do, is there something different that occurs when you get to, you know, um, really true, true scale? Yeah, it's it's a boring answer, but it's really just more of the same. Most things are most things are working right now, and so we're we're 22 people right now, currently remote, but we'll be transitioning back to being in the office in New York. So hiring wow. for all of our teams. And when are you going to do that? And then how are you going to manage that? Do people want to come back, or do people want to stay remote? Yeah. It, uh, it's a great question that we're navigating <laughs> currently. I think to all the employees yeah. of Magic School listening, get your ass <laughs> back to the office. You can't negotiate here's the, it. Here's the official announcement. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think most people have been craving the, the sort of interaction. We're mm-hmm. such a small company and everyone is in New York. So we've been seeing each other for sort of outdoor meals the past couple of months, and like gradually reintegrating everybody. And people are just like really excited, actually, we're finding. So It'll be a, a process over the next several months, start off, you know, a couple of days a week probably, and we'll, we'll play it by ear. Yeah, I, I think most of the companies here in the Valley are starting with the three-day-a-week thing, uh, and you pick which three days. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about the big at-scale companies, the Googles, I think, announced they're going to be three days a week. Um, and then, you know, other places are just saying, listen, if <laughs> we love saving 10% on, 20% on our costs and you save the two hours of commuting so it feels like maybe people work a little bit more since they're not commuting because they get to the desks earlier and they leave later and i feel like the grand bargain here is if you work at home you have to be a high performer and because you you know if you're not a high performer you find out immediately (laughs) because the person is not getting a ton done it's just you have to look at the actual work as opposed to looking at the culture what did you learn during remote work? Did you did you figure some things out as a manager and as a founder? Yeah, well, I actually think your your point about figuring out whether somebody is good faster in a remote world actually applied to hiring for us. So huh. we found we we were forced to become a lot better at hiring, meaning we relied a lot more on projects, on case studies. We uh-huh. I think were less prone to any bias from somebody walking into a coffee shop or our office and just being charming in person and seeming yes. smarter than they are, perhaps. So I think we got we got much better at hiring. Um, well, it does take out the theatrics and performative nature of interviews, totally. which are, you know, you have to put on your best face, you sh- get a haircut, you shine your shoes, you come in. And if you're extroverted, you know, and confident, you get the job. And if you're introverted, but, you know, an assassin, maybe you don't. Right. Yeah. And, and it's and it's easy to sort of fall for that and, and not realize until it's too late. I think to to the prior question just around 
when it's what kind of companies it's right to to be remote or in person. For I think the smaller your company is and the faster things are moving, the more important it is to be in one place. So mm. because we're only two years old, because we're only twenty people, because there's only a couple of people in each function that know what's going on, so we only have a couple of operations people, a couple of growth marketers. It's so much easier if they're all in one place and can just overhear each other's conversations. I can mm. see at a much larger company, once we're in the hundreds of people, it matters a little bit less because things aren't changing as fast. But mm. for us, given how quickly everything's changing, I think more important probably than for larger companies to eventually be more in person. Stupid question. The boxes in cereal, is that like a standard thing, the size and everything? <laughs> and That's you're tied to that? No, because yeah. I was looking at it and I was like, why don't people send me these, especially since they're coming in mail? Why aren't they sent in some other type of bag? Because I get, uh, who's your competitor? Um, uh, Keto Crunch? I forgot the name of it. There's another one that's really good too. Um, what's the name of it? You know, Hitler there, Crunch? There, there's a few. Yeah, there's Catalina Crunch. Is, is Catalina one. Crunch. So I think that there's like, you, and I don't know who came, you, I don't know who came first or if it matters, but. Um, I would say their cereal is like really hard. Mm -hmm. Yours is very soft. So I actually, and it's going to break your heart. I kind of have both in the house <laughs> wow. and I alternate between the two. I'll my mic and walk away right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. <laughs> it is storm off the set. But I will say like, I, I do think like they, they complement each other nicely. Theirs is more in a, a flaky kind of way and yours is more mm. in the cereal kind of way. I find yours is lighter. Theirs is a little heavier. So it's kind of nice to switch them back and forth. Um, but you're, I guess. Box, you, yes. It, it, it's the a box good thing and the size yeah. thing, because they're, they're coming in these little pouches. You're coming in yeah. the big classic box. How, how do you think about that? I, I think from a purely practical function perspective, boxes are not the optimal choice. <laughs> we, we chose a box mostly for branding reasons. Yeah. We, we want to convey this sense of say, nostalgia. Yeah. We want to make people feel like they're eating a classic box of cereal. Uh, and all the slight frustrations of ripping it accidentally as you open it that come with that sense of nostalgia. Um, you know, another thing, just more practically, eventually when you're thinking about retail, um, the stand-up pouches are typically for granola. And so when you talk to a retailer, if, if you're selling cereal in a stand-up pouch, it's very confusing. As confusing as if you were selling granola yeah. in, a, in a box. They don't that quite know what to sense. do with that. But. All right. I've got a very important cereal question. All right. What flavor... Is classic Captain Crunch. <laughs> Wait, that I, was always my, and I'm not talking about peanut butter Captain Crunch because that's peanut butter version of Captain Crunch. But the original Captain Crunch, the golden one, that's made out of crunch berries, mm. which are a fictional item. What flavor is Captain Crunch? That that's a fantastic question. That uh, as somebody born in Scotland who grew up there, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't really have the childhood memories of eating it, so I can't. It's literally I can't help yellow. It's like a yellow orange. It's sweet. It's delicious. But nobody knows what is Captain Crunch actually. What is that flavor actually closest to when you think about it? It's sweet. It's savory. It's crunchy. But that's about it. You can't really figure out what the flavor is. Is it, is it slightly corny, perhaps? Would you describe it as? Mm, mm. I'm not sure. It doesn't know. Corn flakes are corny. Frosted flakes are sugary corny. This is not that flavor. And I don't know. Uh, I'll, give, I, I'll give you another question. Um, go ahead. Your classic favorite fruity cereal. Do you know what flavor that actually is? 
That's interesting. So uh, Frosted Flakes comes to mind or Fruity Pebbles. Now, I'm sorry, um, Fruity Pebbles or Fruit Loops. Mm -hmm. Now, Fruit Loops are similar to yours. They're like Cheerios are in the circle. And then Fruity Pebbles are just tiny little flakes. And they don't taste like any one particular flavor. I'm, I'm feeling the crunch in my mouth. Yeah, they're not citrus. They don't taste like apple. Are they lemony, orangey? No, I don't know. What flavor are? Next, yeah, cl close your eyes next time. They're they're mostly lemony. If you close your eyes, very are they citrusy. mostly lemon? Yeah, very citrusy. Uh, it's it's kind of strange. Is the it first citrusy? Time you realize that? Yeah, because the milk is countering the citrusy. But is mm. there actually citrus in like a fruity pebbles type thing, or is oh, it just I mean, a lot I, artificial I, flavor? I, I couldn't speak to exactly yeah. what they're using. But if you close what? your eyes, it tastes surprisingly citrusy. Wow, that's interesting, huh? All right, listen, continued success with the business. Congratulations on raising 10 million uh, last year or just late last year. Um, that's going to take you for a while, I assume. Who'd you do the 10 million with? Was that an inside round or? Yeah, mostly an inside round. Yep. Oh, very nice. So things are going well. It was a mm -hmm. preemptive inside round mm -hmm. they offered you uh, before you went to market. That's yep, how it went it down? Taking advantage of, of the momentum. Yeah, and working oh. with people we know and trust. So you didn't have to go out to market. When you're a founder, Tell me about that decision to not go out and try to optimize maybe for price uh, and go on the roadshow and instead do an inside round. For me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, when, when I think about my life running a company, it, you know, whether the valuation is up or down a few percent do doesn't matter. And ultimately, mm -hmm. if there's a successful outcome, it's not going to matter to me whether I own a slight amount more or less. What Got is going to matter is whether I know and trust my investors whether Got we get it. on well day to day. Mm. And so to, to continue working with people I've known for several years, just yeah. is a sort of You have Jeremy Liu from Lightspeed, um, yeah. which is the perfect investor for you because he was super overweight and chubby. And then he went on a <laughs> keto diet and he's diesel now. Yeah, he, he's an amazing guy and a fantastic you found, investor. Uh, you found investor product fit. <laughs> there we go. There we go. No, and it's we, a serious yeah. thing. I mean, I know Jeremy and, and he literally struggled with weight and he was very public about it and then like he he went on like a crazy uh diet and worked out and he and he's diesel now so he understands keto that's you don't have to really convince him that this should exist in the world because he's your target market it's pretty great yep exactly all right listen continued success everybody go try magic uh spoon it's pretty great i will tell you that. oh sorry uh bleep that out uh pretty freaking <laughs> great um uh and my my kids love it and good for kids too right like yeah yeah. Good for kids to not and have many, all this many big sugar. Many of them don't even realize it's healthy, which is the They don't. Thing. They do not. I tell you, they do not at all. And uh, if you want to just go J-Cal style, get the vanilla and the peanut butter and you go 50-50. That's what I do. Is it vanilla or is it frosted? I guess it's frosted. Yeah, it, it's frosted. I actually go chocolate and peanut butter is my combo. Yeah, you know what? That's just... Too much. That's, obs that's obscene. <laughs> I mean, you're... That's like so hedonistic. I mean, you might, that's just over the top. <laughs> what I used to do was when I was a kid, I would have frosted flakes and then I would take, I loved honey for some reason, and I would drizzle honey on my frosted flakes. That was truly degenerate. Wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's just way lot. too much sugar. Listen, continued success. Congratulations. And uh, we'll see you all next time on this Thanks week's Bye-bye. All right. Just a little button here at the end of the pod. I'm doing an event, a reverse demo day called Meet our fund it's taking place in june online virtual go to meetourfund.com you'll have 25 different venture firms pitch you and those firms 
uh, will take 20 minutes to pitch you founders on why you should take their money. And then we'll have 10 minutes of Q and A. It's going to be a great event. You can come for free. Just make sure you apply right now because uh, it's going to basically fill up meetourfund.com. <laughs>